I'm Alec Baldwin, and you are listening to Mission Daily. Selected as Best of 2018 by Apple, Mission Daily is the number one podcast for accelerated learning. Hey, everyone. This is Rachel Kanya, and today we have Daniel Buckner, Senior Project Manager and Head of Decentralized Identity at Microsoft. In the modern age of technology, your digital identity is becoming increasingly important. How does someone use websites and services like Amazon, Google, and Apple without compromising on privacy and security? In this interview, Chad and Daniel sit down to discuss what Daniel and his team at Microsoft are working on, why secure data and financial transfers are becoming more and more prominent, and how Daniel and Microsoft are helping to lead the charge for data privacy. Stay tuned for more from Daniel Buckner, Head of Decentralized Identity at Microsoft. Hey everyone, welcome back to Mission Daily. Today's guest is Daniel. Daniel, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks so, for having me. It's oh, it's our pleasure. And we were doing crypto. Uh, we're doing a crypto theme week, so we broke everything down into these theme weeks where we try to explore topics in the um, most beneficial way for our listeners that's possible. So a lot of people listening are they're interested in crypto. They care about it. Maybe some of them are holding, they've bought some crypto assets, but I would say the large majority of our audience isn't that familiar with crypto. So when you introduce your job, who you are and what you work on, um, how do you usually present it? Yeah. So, you know, Daniel Buckner, Microsoft, I work in the identity division uh, of Microsoft and really centers around technical product and standards for decentralized identity. And we say decentralized identity because, you know, technically it doesn't need to include something like a blockchain or a ledger. It just so happens that those systems, those crypto systems that you're talking about are um, really tailor-made for the use case and and the features that we need uh, for decentralized identity and those pursuits. And when you say decentralized identity, what is this and how, I mean, this is something that powers everything that goes on around us right now in tech, in, in the enterprise. Um, how do you describe that? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess I would set it up by saying that today in digital systems, you don't really have a concept of true identity. There's a few pieces of identity. One main one that everyone recognizes identifiers. You have many of those today in, in many systems and they're all centralized, like your social security number is an identifier with the U.S. government. Uh, you may have an email address that's essentially a leased identifier from a domain. Maybe it's Outlook, maybe it's Gmail, something like that. And there's several other identifiers that are, that are similar. The problem that we have right now today is that it's dubious to tie you know, a, a lot of your data and your digital self to those identifiers because they really could be pulled out from you, you know, at any time. C- corporations you know, go bankrupt, uh, they shut down services. And if those identifiers had key elements of your actual identity tied to them, mm. you, know, you, you would kind of lose access to those. One big piece is identifiers. The other piece is the actual things that make up your identity, which is all the data about you. You know, and that goes that goes from what I call core identity, which is what everyone would think about. You know, driver's license, those proofs of you know who you are in your relation to government entities, that sort of thing. But then there's also everything else, which is about ninety five percent of identity. And that's like your blog posts, your phone calls, uh, your interactions with people, your app data. All that stuff makes up your identity, and our thesis from a really like, you know, 10,000 foot view is that you should be in control of that, all elements of your identity, whether it's your app data or your, your proofs and 
and know what you disclose and have the ability to minimize that disclosure. Right. So you stay safe and private. And there's the famous quote, what gets measured gets managed. And I think that applies here because for the average consumer or the average person that's doing anything online, their data is spread out across, uh, on average, how many different companies have data about that individual, would you say, if we had to guess? With third-party cookies, we would have to number in the tens of thousands, I would imagine. What's going to happen when we start pulling all of that data into one place or making it available, searchable, and usable by a third-party entity or by the individual? What's that future look like? So, you know, how we kind of look at this is if you could just imagine a system and we don't have to go into too many of the you know, low-level technical details where you had an identifier, like, like kind of like I talked about, but it wasn't an email address that was given to you by a company. It was something that you could create and own independently of any other organization. And you had this identifier and it allowed you to securely encrypt data and you know, keep it private for yourself in several locations. Uh, we call these things identity hubs or personal data stores. And we believe that you start to collect your, your data with you. It mm-hmm. doesn't, you know, it's not sharded out across thousands of application servers or all sorts of other centralized entities. The data resides with you. And once you have more control over the data, you can sort of manage who has access to it or what facets of it you want to give out. And it's not just one identifier. That's one important thing to drive home here is um, that would be kind of a scary world, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of like a super cookie where now you have one thing that ties you to everything. Our concept and the concept of many other organizations in the Decentralized Identity Foundation that we contribute to is that you might have something like pairwise identifiers. If I meet someone and I want to have a discrete relationship with them, I would create one of these decentralized cell-phoned identifiers and I, you know, that's how they would know me. Right. So it doesn't correlate everything I do to one ID. But it would share a snapshot or something of the d- data you wanted to share? Whatever, of, whatever facet or portion subset you wanted to expose to that entity. Gotcha. Yeah. Right. And I I guess it gets exciting because you could enter a world where by yourself, all of your data, you're not really going to be able to monetize that. But when you start to get into larger and larger groups, I think it gets exciting because there are a number of economic implications, whether they're insurance based or from a healthcare standpoint or just from a maybe like recruiting and talent standpoint where that data then becomes very valuable. Um, Could you talk a little bit about how we start to think about maybe like pricing and creating a market for data and why people should or they should not be excited about this? So this is a really uh, contentious topic, actually. Um, Some people believe that, you know, no data should be saleable Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of like, you know, a market. I kind of fall in, I fall in a camp where I think that there's a sensible amount of data and types of data that that you could perhaps want to um, gain benefit from in a transaction. Some data, though, is is absolutely stuff that we shouldn't sell our rights away for and shouldn't really enable. Uh, but things that you, you might want to you know sell is the idea that let's say I'm in the market for purchasing a car, right? Um, even that expression is an expression of identity. It's right. my current state at this time. Who am I? Like, what do I want in the world? And so I might be really willing to sell that lead about myself and have control over that. And then benefit from it. So there's actually a you know a real world tangible uh, gain that I have when I go into the dealership that I do select who contacts me versus today where really the gain is in that middleman who never talks to you, never never gets your permission or mm-hmm. anything to to sort of advertise on your behalf. 
and then you don't get anything from the dealer. It's just you happen to be there. So I think there's lots of places that we can work in value transfer back to the consumer with data. And I think too, if we don't start exploring this through a marketplace, we're just going to get more of the same right now, which is basically there are a number of corporations that are their business model is just predicated on acquiring more and more data about the user. Do you think that's fair to say, or do you think that's like a gross simplification of many technology business models today? I think I think it can, there's a lot of there's many reasons that's occurring today. I mean, I think there's some organizations that do it not out of malice, but certainly not, and in a pretty going, ethical way too. Like yeah. I'm not being harsh on these. It's easy to think that these corporations are just running around doing whatever they want. Far from it. They're subject to a lot of regulatory oversight already, and it looks like that's going to be increasing in the future. So just a quick yeah, I, I don't think right now. I think a, a lot of the corporations that aren't doing it in an ethical way, they really just haven't had the tools, right? right. We, we haven't really equipped people with both the technical pieces or the standards to be able to do what we're talking about now, which is, you know, if I owned all my data and I had this reflection of me that I could, I could hand you pieces of that data in a privacy preserving fashion, then maybe some of these, this data like banks, KYC data or other things where they're almost requisitely collecting this honeypot. Right. And, and in some cases it's even been mandatory from, you know, a regulatory standpoint those things we can start to replace. We can have models where really all you need to know is not my exact bank account, who I bank with and all this other stuff. You might just need to know that I can prove that I bank with a reputable bank that falls under some sort of regulation and I have over a certain amount of money. Right. You don't need to know the nth degree. You don't need to keep copies of my records. All that can be abstracted. Right. And I feel like that is what it basically, that we're talking about the promise of solving a lot of challenges that people are facing right now or basically presenting individuals with more options is that if we were to simplify this about what we're really striving for or what your mission is maybe would you say it's to create more options for individuals or what is it to protect individual liberty if we had to simplify it what would you say your like driving force or your mission is here i i think it's to put users and and just people in general back in control of their daily lives and so much of that is digital these mm -hmm. days and when once you do that you can you empower people with privacy and with some of these things that in in the age you know after snowden that we seem to have lost right and i think that people should gain again they should gain a security in what the fourth amendment promises in in what some of our rights promise right and it it trickles all the way down you know that's kind of a emotive like high level thing and but it goes all the way down to like your applications. So many applications these days are doing trivial things and they're storing their data on some third party server. And they're really just extracting and squeezing every, every piece of value that you might not even know uh, out of it, right? Doing things with it that you have, you have no idea you consented to. And so we believe that not only is this just about identity proofs, it's also about app data. I can envision a future where you know, I use a lot of, I, I use many apps on my phone, but a, a lot of them don't require a third-party server, like let's say Google Keep or a to-do list. There's no real reason why they have to keep that on a server. I could be writing uh, that same data in the app as the developer to the user's personal data store mm -hmm. and using that as the backing data store. So it's great from a user perspective. The data never leaves my boundary. I always control it. But it's also pretty cool from a developer perspective, because as a developer, what that implicitly means is now instead of writing serverless code, which is you know kind of a buzzword these days, how about writing no backend code at all, hmm. shipping an app that just renders on your device that its sole purpose is to interface with your own data store, right? And nothing ever leaves those boundaries. 
And so what's the technical process there? I, I'm probably going to botch the words here, but the developer just creates a system that hashes the user's data to their personal data store or what's what's the transfer process like and how is it how are we going to create secure transfer processes yeah so i'll set up the you know the kind of topology here so dids themselves are just are ids um big ugly numbers and letters right together um that uniquely identify interactions and they're backed by public and private keys much like you know crypto itself like transferring bitcoin and you can have multiple keys that are associated with an id so uh, typically, this will be like a public key that uh, links your phone to an ID, anything you're going to actually use to uh, to prove that you are you. Gotcha. And from there, your data store, it is associated with that ID and it knows you're you because you're essentially saying, hey, I'm I'm DID one, two, three. And it goes and gets those keys that it knows to be associated with that ID and forces you to prove it. So if you hold the private keys that are associated with those you know, public keys, then you you can prove to the server that you are who you say you are. From there, how the application model works is I might have, you know, one of those keys that proves who I am on my phone and I download an app and that app just purely runs on my phone and I give it certain permissions to my data store. And when it wants to write data, I encrypt them with those keys that are associated with my ID and I, I send them off to like the cloud version of my data store, or the one that runs at my house um, and they all synchronize. And the data store understands who it's coming from because it's it's signed and encrypted with my keys. Mm -hmm. In our, in the cloud sense, we believe that we're going to stand up services that are these identity hubs, these personal data stores, and your data will be encrypted. So while we're providing the service, we're not seeing any of your data as Microsoft, right? We're we're really just kind of an API provider. It's a standard set of personal data store APIs that we happen to run and developers use and users use, but you know we have no lens into what they're actually doing with their data is. Right. All right. So let's shift gears here and talk a little bit about the uh, maybe moral and ethical implications of this. I think the starting point or the starting story that I want to tell and just open up with is, so one of my favorite authors is Michael Crichton. I talk about him a lot in the podcast. I think he's one of the most underrated authors, but if there's an interview, I think he gave in the eighties where the interviewer is asking him a question and he basically says like, you know, Michael, I know you're a big fan of George Orwell. The 1984 type of nightmare dystopian scenario hasn't happened, thank God. But what can we do to prevent that? And Michael's response is, no, 1984 happened. Something like that happened where we live in the society that it's not necessarily Big Brother that's doing it, but we live in the society where individuals around you who you think might be benevolent or maybe non-nefarious they do influence your behavior and your choices simply by the nature of the fact that they're observing, that they're going to insert some basically pressures on you and limit your available behavior. So all societies, all cultures do this to a certain extent. Daniel, what's your take on where we're at and where is our culture at in that sense? Because I feel like this is a, a really important topic. Privacy is something that means a lot to me, but there are many people that don't care about privacy. So where do you think our society and culture is at? And um, how do you respond to that story? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a huge, a huge problem and it's only going to get worse if we don't do something about it. And it, it really affects, you know, from the lens of government and from the consumer space uh, and you see, you see it everywhere. So with government, you know, tracking all of this metadata, which, you know, it's funny that we're, we're only tracking metadata. In a lot of cases, the metadata is actually the, the most critical 
pieces right. of data that you can track. So, so to know where someone's going to be, their patterns of life and, and all about them at, that, at the level that you could predict what their next day is going to look like roughly, I think is, is just a scary thing. I don't think anyone should have that power. Mm -hmm. I, I think that, you know, we should be protected from that and our rights should be upheld in the consumer sense. And, you know, just in social spheres, I think we're kind of seeing that with a lot of social media today. People mm -hmm. are, you know, they're no longer tolerant of the idea that someone can hold a view that you, you deeply disagree with, right. but then on 95% of other things, maybe you agree fully with them. And for that one view that they may hold, you know, not only do you say, well, I don't want to talk to you as much or just about that topic, but their economic opportunity should be limited yeah, or something. Exactly. Yeah. And we'll, we'll send mobs after them. And, yeah. you know, just, I, I just feel like it's going to lead to a breakdown of discourse that really has reverberating effects. Yeah. And, and that is, uh, it's not a good future for anyone because I think that change anywhere in society positive change. It always comes from people on the edges, people who have been marginalized because any type of true technological innovation or philosophical innovation, it's not going to be welcomed in its current day, basically. Like it's, I think it's the norm is basically, um, you know, there's the famous quote that those who knew what might be learned, humanity is crucified and burned. And, and that has held true for most of human history. So how can we go about creating a future where those who do discover something and create something can have the necessary privacy and time it takes to present that idea or that creation to the world in the right way. Well, I mean, I, I think this is honestly one big thing that can help and, you know, why I think, it, you know, it's great that Microsoft is getting into this. It's never been a great sale to just come in and say, look, we're going to give you more privacy and security. Mm -hmm. um, it's traditionally like I, I worked at Mozilla for about half a decade before I worked at Microsoft and we were an an incredible respecter of privacy and and you know personal decisions and you know with our browser and we would ask people on forums like hey you know what's most important to you and a lot of times people would rank privacy and security highly but it turned out their behaviors didn't reflect it because other means of convenience or or things inserted in various flows mm -hmm. overrode those lofty and noble intentions sure so I think part of this is getting a company that can say, look, we've distilled that there's actually value beyond those things that it does that enhance business and enterprise and provide, you know, cost reductions, other things that have bottom lines to them. And that's, in my experience, the best sales, right? If you get all of those good things like privacy and security, but you can deliver it on actual value to end businesses and consumers that touches on convenience and price and all of those other things that we know control most decisions, that's probably the best path or vector. Yeah. And um, I would love to talk about your time at Mozilla because I think it's an interesting organization. And so what led you there and what are some of the lessons you learned over your career working there? So I, I was always interested in web standards. Uh, it's something, I, you know, I'm a self-taught developer. I went to school for business and you just really was uh, fell in love with technology and being able to, to throw up web apps that you can create yourself. And even back then when it was harder, it was still still amazing to be able to do that. Uh, so I, you know, I first started at Mozilla on a couple standards projects. One was around uh, what, what is now called web extensions. So the idea that now your extensions in Chrome and Edge and, and Firefox all you know, are standard and you can, you can use them anywhere. That was a first initiative. Uh, but then it led quickly to where I was, you know, it was the PM of the developer ecosystem. And that was really geared at trying to make developers' lives easier building apps and all of the, the tools and resources they would need to do that. And as we started looking at like what would be 
the easiest type of app to build. Uh, there was a couple veins, you know, that, that we went down. One was the app manifest PWA, this thing that's, it's called progressive web apps where you can have a web app and it looks and feels like a native app. And now you can even install them on your devices. I don't know if any listeners out there have had this experience yet, but it's definitely shipped down to Android phones. And mm-hmm. I believe there's support coming for, I think even windows supports it. Um, so progressive web apps is the idea that you can ship a web app and it has this, this very native feel, but then there's the other piece where I started with identity. I didn't know it was an identity problem where I was saying, well, why do we need backends for web apps? Like, wouldn't it be cool if I could just, you know, have an app that I created that didn't require all this backend server code, which a lot of developers don't have uh, experience in. And the question really actually leads you to identity. And that's how I, how I got to the, to this point of wanting to work on this, because when you say, well, can't I just store it with the user? That infers that you, you kind of have this relationship with the user and the user has their own Right. place. And so that's where I started asking the questions in about 2012 about, you know, how, how do we actually, how do we do this? Mm-hmm. And, it, and it really comes down to identity. And Mozilla, you know, we, we had this little project that we started to investigate it called Firefox Handshake. And this was at the time where Mozilla was trying to do Firefox OS, uh, you know, their own phone OS. I don't, I don't think anyone in the States bought a Firefox OS phone, but um, it, it was, it was, a I tough, didn't, but it sounds great. Yeah. It was a great idea. It was, you know, web-driven operating yeah. system, all that stuff. But there, there was other economic forces that made it, you know, sort of untenable in the end. But we, we put a ton of money into it, and it sort of sucked all the capital uh, mm-hmm. that we, you know, for all these other projects that we could do. And so, th- when we got the no on going forward with this identity-driven, you know, personal app sort of thing, I started looking around, and a, a buddy of mine, Christian Heilman, uh, he's code poet on Twitter. He was over at, at Microsoft. He had left recently, and he said, "Hey, you know, you should, you should come over and, you know, try and." work on the same sort of app stuff and web stuff over here. And in my mind, it was really like, you know, I I started looking at things I didn't know about Microsoft, which was that they're a huge player in enterprise and government identity systems. Um, Really, it's, you know, vast majority of of all businesses run on Microsoft identity systems. And I I thought to myself, wow, this this could be a really great org to sort of bring this to the fore. And I I went into that job thinking to myself, well, I'll give it a couple years. And I, you know, I don't want to just do the same old thing. I really want to do this. Let's see if we can sell it through. And I remember this really fun conversation that I had. They hired me and they said, hey, in 48 hours, you got to be over in Austin, Texas. I'd deliver some speech about Edge Browser, which at that point was the newer browser was just coming out and how it's going to be more standards compliant. And so, so 40 hours in, I'm flying in it. You know, I, I touched down in, in Austin and I'm talking to uh, this, this gentleman. He's in the green room with me. And he's like, hey, you know, uh, so why do you really want to be at Microsoft? And I, I didn't really remember. So, you know, this this person. So I, I just kind of gave him some silly answer, which I was kind of half serious. I said, well, I'm here because, you know, secretly I want to develop this decentralized identity thing. And that's, you know, really what I'm passionate about. And I think it's really just, it might change the world if we can get it done. And he's like, hey, you know who I am? I was like, no, not really. <laughs> and he's like, I was like, are you, do you know Dave Katu, my boss? He's like, no. He's like, in fact, I'm, I'm like your boss's boss's boss. <laughs> So it's like, it's good to know you have passions in other orgs, but it was, it was funny because he said, Hey, just keep, keep going with that. And that's one amazing thing um, about Microsoft that I've found is I've had some of the best managers in my life and every one of them, even though they knew I needed to do my daily job, knew that I was passionate about doing this and encouraged me and gave me time and let me develop it. And eventually we sold it into the identity division. You know, now we have a formal um, initiative around it. Yeah, I love that story because I think entrepreneurial projects or entrepreneurial, however you want to call them, 
they get started in weird ways sometimes through an offhand comment or just a serendipitous connection. Could you talk a little bit more about how you champion that project? Because a lot of listeners work at larger tech companies and they want to know they have ideas for you know aspirations of projects they want to start, but actually getting them approved, implemented and securing the budget for them, not so easy. So are there any other tips or uh, stories you can share about how you've been expanding your efforts inside Microsoft? I think I think the extent that you believe in something will determine the persistence that you have in going after it. And so that was for me, that started in 2012 with this idea and, you know, moving through that Firefox handshake project process and kind of getting a no and hitting a wall and then saying, you know, what do I have to do? I did, I did another job for about nine months in between just to pay the bills. But really, I was driven by a mission to yeah. to restore users to the center of both their identity and their data. And you know, sometimes you might have to take a cool off period in between, kind of like look at what you may have done wrong or what didn't work out, right. you know, why you weren't able to sell it through, acquire the funding, whatever that next step was, and and reevaluate and then adjust. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's that for me was looking at organizations like Microsoft and others who I thought strategically could be, you know, people that could deliver on this value proposition. Right. And, and that's, that was the biggest turn for me was kind of like standing back and saying, let's not just run in place and keep doing what we're doing wherever it is, but like try and strategically find the next scenario that, that is opportunistic, that puts you in line to be able to achieve what you want. Gotcha. And okay. So feel free to speculate wildly here or decline the question. Why do you think the media or maybe the incumbent media is so obsessed with uh, Satoshi Nakamoto or potentially learning the identity of that individual or group of people? Well, I, I think everyone, I think it's unsettling for people not to be able to characterize things in terms of creators. Mm-hmm. I think that just in general is something that that people have like natural curiosity around. And on the negative side, I think some people really, really deeply want to find a creator to something because if they don't like it, they might be able to find something about the creator that they can infer and sort of tie to that system. Like, you know, you, you saw with Defense Distributed, the guy who's doing the, the 3D printing, 3D printed guns. That was distressing for me as a person who believes in all of our rights, um, right. you know, who stands for all of our rights. Someone who's put up as a figurehead like that has this, this uh, legal issue that was a serious one. And that's sort of like, you know, you as an onlooker, you're like, did that take down the ability to deliver a message that should be independent mm-hmm. of its creator? Right. And that's, I think that that's why some people pursue it. Others are just genuinely curious or want to know what that person's thoughts are on the development of it. And I know you, if anyone on the, you know, the podcast is familiar with how Bitcoin's gone, it hasn't been the smoothest road. Mm-hmm. There's been forks in these communities and arguments and sort of this appeal to authority comes out where everyone says, well, Satoshi would think this. <laughs> so if we could just find him, you know, we just ask him how it should be. Right. I think that we need to start to develop a sense of contentment around anonymous creators, because I, I feel like a golden age of productivity or technological creation, that's not going to happen until people feel secure, completely safe in putting their ideas out to the world. Do you feel like that the future of technology or creation is going to be anonymous creation and teams that don't wish to share their identities publicly? Do you feel like that's going to be, is that going to be the future or are people going to prefer to be the creators, the co-founders? I think it really depends on what the product or service you're developing is. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's there's some that you have absolutely no problem uh, with everyone knowing it was you. You know, I don't know if it's like the next Instagram or you know some social media sure. site that you just you know it's nothing really contentious there. 
Although there probably is a lot of contentious there. Um, <laughs> it's true. But I think there's other things that are, you know, they're liberty minded things. They might be in some societies subversive where people absolutely have the desire and even the need to stay anonymous. Mm-hmm. And I think it also, it comes back to identity in a lot of ways. Like how do you collaborate right now? Uh, if I went on GitHub, I could pay for private repos, but I still have a login and I'm sure there's lots of metadata. If I had that data under my control and I could interface with people through pseudonyms and other things of that nature, not only would I maybe want to be private in certain exchanges like that of building a company or a product or um, some sort of piece of code, but maybe it just becomes more ingrained in life that we don't need to disclose all of the things about ourselves if there isn't a benefit to us. Right. And I think too, are you familiar with the Dark Forest problem? And uh, there's a sci-fi trilogy that came out that popularized it, um, the three body three body problem. Was the, uh, I'm not super familiar, but I'd love to. So the Dark Forest problem is basically, it's uh, a thought experiment that if you consider Fermi's paradox or the fact that statistically, it's very likely that the universe is filled with intelligent life or at one point was, you want to be very, very careful and you want to treat the universe as a uh, dark forest. So the theory goes that any civilization that does arise is only going to be successful if they act with extreme aggressiveness and if they basically keep their location a secret for as long as possible. And if they do come in contact with someone else, they basically have to be incredibly defensive. uh, Otherwise, they're not going to survive. The theory goes that the universe is so opposed to life and it's so hard for life to exist that the state of other civilizations is probably very aggressive, to say the least, and that it's very foolish to broadcast our location. So if we take this idea and apply it to a business standpoint, I think that people don't think about the dark forest problem enough in a private business standpoint, because I think you do want to protect things, especially in the early stages of any idea of any movement. Because when I look at, I'm not deeply involved in the Bitcoin community and the blockchain community and crypto at large, but I would say that when I glance at it, it feels pretty tumultuous. It feels like a community where you might not want to expose your identity. Uh, You might not want to expose where you live. So I would love to hear your thoughts on how do we make the crypto community, or do we even want to make it a friendlier and safer place? Should that be something we're aspiring to? And do you think this is an issue right now? Uh, Yeah, I mean, in its nascent forms without it being, you know, widely adopted everywhere, I think there's definitely, you know, if you are someone who talks a lot about cryptocurrency or, you know, there's good reason to believe you might have a lot, it's, it's easy to single you out. right? And so I think people are generally defensive for good reason at this point. I think there's better technology and security measures that we can put in place that might ease the burden versus just saying, well, we know this person's probably got some private keys at home. Let's go get them. That's that's something that I think we can make better over time. But it's even beyond just cryptocurrency, going back to sort of the identity sphere, cryptocurrency is just one piece of your identity, right? Mm-hmm. Some money that you own, some keys that you own, right? There's tons of other sensitive data in your life. And I kind of lump them all together. And I think to myself, what value am I getting out of having this particular piece of data public to others? And if if I can't answer that question pretty certainly, right. that I'm deriving some benefit from it, probably shouldn't be. That's, that's such a great reminder. Yeah. That's a really, really great reminder. I would encourage everyone to to follow some form of that. Are there any other books, ideas, or influencers in the space that you're uh, you're following 
where are you getting your information feeds primarily from? So, you know, one guy who's been, I think, instrumental in my, you know, developing a lot of the concepts and, you know, philosophical standpoints is Christopher Allen. Uh, he used to work at Blockstream. He's now uh, independent and he has his own, his own organization. And he's big into the DID space, but he also, you know, obviously we're working for Blockstream, one of the one of the core contributors to Bitcoin itself. He's really shepherded me along and and I've looked to a lot of his ideas and sort of taken them on myself. And so I would say Christopher Allen, um, Steve Wilson is a great skeptic. I really appreciate folks like Steve Wilson who are critical of everything on a blockchain type use cases. I'm actually the same way. I don't think that blockchains are great for a whole lot of things, actually most things. There's a, a very few set of use cases that they actually provide benefit to. And so I think Steve does a great job of calling that out. Those are probably the two that, that are you know, right off the top of my head that I'd mentioned. Cool. And so speaking of a skeptic, are there any skeptical or maybe uh, paranoid interpretations of who Satoshi could be that you feel like maybe hold some weight or we should think more deeply about? Or do you think that the possibility that Satoshi Nakamoto was a nefarious actor or group of actors is slim to none? I, I think based on some of the things that he did and chose, I don't think it would be a nefarious actor. Like the, the certain curves he cho chose for a lot of these, um, you know, the underlying technical pieces of the system, I don't think are consistent with with that. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't put too much time into that, but I would say right. like, in terms of who contributed the most, it's clearly like, clearly Adam Back, Nick Sabo, and uh, you know Hal Finney. But like, speaking of you know who contributed the most to Bitcoin, I would say probably you know Nick Sabo, Adam Back, Hal, right? Um, those individuals, and I don't know if so. Satoshi's any type of nefarious, potentially nefarious founding is offset by the fact that you can see so many of the contributors and see how things are being implemented, or yeah, and I mean he he put certain things like the Genesis block message, which was, you know, pretty direct and, and other things throughout his code, the style kind of almost you would seem to reflect a single person who right. might have contributing folks who maybe didn't know his true identity. Um, or didn't even know what they were working on possibly. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. So I, I mean, I just don't spend too much time on it because I, I think it's totally fine that we have an anonymous sure. creator. So, uh, you know, I've, I've concerned myself more with the business of how do we use this new thing that provides these new values to right. so like enhance you know the world around us and that's a great segue so what new ways of using this technology are you most excited about that are not currently in the mainstream right now so i i think the top three i actually don't know that there's many other ways uh than the three that i'm going to mention other than maybe a future state of the world so I'll, I'll walk you through the three that i think we could use it for now sure which i think are you know are definitely within the within the, the, the sure category. So there's cryptocurrency itself, money. Uh, we've seen that work. We just really haven't had a great way to do digitally transferred assets before that in a way that you can you know wholly own them. The next one that's pretty simple is timestamping. And that's the idea of, you know, I hash a piece of data and I insert it into one of these blockchain systems. And what that basically does is let you roughly prove within this logical you know period of time, this block window of time, which in Bitcoin is like 10 minutes, uh, you can triangulate that something was first published to the world, like a matching piece of data to that hash was published to the world. So that gives you some some timestamping properties. For identity, we really use it for what it was when it first started. And Satoshi, before he called it blockchain, he actually called it time chain. And the mm. reason he did that is because what Bitcoin really actually is, is a net forward clock. 
It says that this thing happened before this thing happened before this thing. It solves double spend in there too. But that progression, that linear chronology always forward is what we actually use in decentralized identity. Hmm. And, the, and why it comes into play for decentralized identity is that if I create an identifier and I register it in a system, uh, like Bitcoin as some protocols allow, it might start out with a couple keys, maybe the current cell phone that I have in my laptop. But as time goes on, I might buy a new cell phone. And so I need to rotate out the key that was paired with my own cell phone with my new one. And that is a state problem. And essentially states need to be in a linear chronology. So it's not that I need to do an actual Bitcoin transaction, but I've got to anchor something to a deterministic and decentralized chronology. And so I'd say at at initiation, it was my first phone that was associated with my ID. And then sometime later at another point in history, I rolled the key and now this other key is associated. And you have to have an ability, sort of it's an Oracle problem. Everyone has to be able to look to one source of truth to say, what happened first and then second. Hmm. And that is primarily what it's used for in identity. All the other use cases that I see with most of these blockchain systems, I would say get a lot more interesting if you do settlement of exchange in the native currency. So right now you have like smart contracts and that's a big buzzword in, you know, in the world. The problem with smart contracts is right now, a lot of times the um, in business utilization anyway, the logic might be baked into the smart contract, but then it ends up just calling out to say, hey, I figured it out. Go, you know, Alice pay Bob, mm. right? And that payment system is like some other centralized server. Right. And technically that centralized server isn't mandated for Alice to pay Bob just because you said it, it, it should. Sure. And so I think those use cases of smart contracts and things might start getting a lot more interesting if you actually settled the value that was exchanged from Alice and Bob in the native currency, whether it's Bitcoin or Ether or something of that nature, right? If you don't do that, it's sort of this, you know, it's it's smoke and mirrors a little bit, right? right? But I don't think we're going to be at a point where, you know, mainstream businesses are settling in that native currency with smart contracts for, for quite a while. And, sure. You know, practically and, speaking. And what's in your mind a, um, a hopeful scenario where enterprises would just uh, completely embrace blockchain te- technology. So many financial enterprises, they're they're certainly doing this. But are there, yeah, any scenarios you can see where that would lead to um, enterprises adopting it much more quickly or wanting to invest in it more quickly? I, I really think it comes down to sort of the similar thing I said about how we sell in the great features of security and privacy and all those things. They ha- they really have to come through the variables that businesses are looking to maximize, which right. is, you know, price, delivery of product, you know, features, that sort of thing. If you can deliver something that that touches on those aspects of a product or service and enhances those, that's going to be, I think, the fastest road to getting it into the hands of the most people. And that's exactly what we've tried to do with the centralized identity. If you if you go into a company and you said, hey, you know, you got your centralized identity system right now, but it'd be so much cooler for users if it was decentralized and they could just, they could own some things. If that's all you told them, they'd say, well, you may, maybe that's great for users, but I mean, what is it doing for us? So we have to make a concerted argument for the value proposition that we're delivering and say, hey, you know what? Those honeypots you're collecting right now, not only are, are they today poisonous assets essentially to you that, you know, you're going to have a breach and it could cost you tons of money, sure. but you're going to get regulated and you are being regulated to not do these things. And right. I'm sure the consequences are going to get more severe. So we're going to deliver you a solution to that problem. Right. We're going to de-risk re- your business. That's going to de-risk your business. Yeah. And so if you, if you take that tact, I think it resonates with, uh, you know, the VPs and the C-levels a heck of a lot more than just 
the aspirational idea that we're trying to do great for users, even though that's what we are trying to do in the end. Do you see a lot of, or do you hear a lot of uh, feedback or outreach from CISOs or what's the, basically like, what's the demographic of the person inside the enterprise or the executive that is reaching out or trying to collaborate with you and your team the most? I think it really, it's all over the map. Uh, I think that you'll get, you know, some really forward thinking CEOs that have an idea of what that could mean to them. Mm -hmm. Users having control of their data, users having more privacy and security, and they digest that and, you know, they, they send their teams to investigate. Other times it's, you know, a really motivated director or VP within the organization who might have some sort of personal leaning, you know, in the space or has really done deep investigation and then goes and actively tries to apply those value scenarios to their own products and services. Um, So I wouldn't say it it really is clustered in any one particular organizational grouping. Right. It's it's really across the board. You get it all. And what's for you been your most surprising experience about working at Microsoft? Because, you know, you mentioned earlier, you're remote, you're traveling around, you're giving talks, you're doing all kinds of different things. Yeah. What's your day-to-day like and what's been the most surprising thing about being at Microsoft? I would say that uh, I've worked at a few tech companies and the maturity level is is pretty amazing. Like you go, you go into work and, you know, we work with a super diverse group of folks, you know, both racial and gender and all that stuff. And, uh, and everyone really just works. They work to get things done and they do it effectively. And, you know, there's not a lot of judgment that I've seen or any of those, you know, problems that some organizations might have. And that's just obviously in my, in the groups that I interact with, who knows, you know, it's a large sure. hundred thousand yeah. people. So that was, that was awesome. And then the, uh, really the mentorship that I've gotten from the bosses that I've had and the people I've reported to has been better than anywhere I've ever been. They, they really, honestly, I feel like they believe and, it, and it's genuine that they really want you to do the best you can, both for the company, but also personally, even if that means that you're going to spend some of your time doing something that isn't, you know, maybe uh, on their list of three goals for the quarter or something like that. It really is about personal growth and they take it seriously. And so let's segue to some lightning round topics where we just do a series of rapid fire questions. So if you're ready, let's jump into it. Sure. So favorite fiction or nonfiction book you've read in the last two years and why? Fiction or nonfiction book? Um, gosh. I, and it could be of all time too, if you've got, got a favorite. Yeah. So honestly, uh, I spend most of my days reading white papers. So okay. I don't read a lot <laughs> Love of it. books. I hate, I hate to it. say that. No, um, no, that's all right. But best, um, yeah, it could gosh. be a favorite white papers, um, for that matter. Papers. Yeah. Well, there's the Bitcoin white paper. That's, yeah. that's, that was always <laughs> good a good starting one. point. Um, I, I liked reading about, we are doing some work on recovery secrets right now, and we're having to learn about what people can remember. Hmm. Uh, and right now it's like memory is the hardest problem, right? The, how do you secure private keys? And it's just a human problem. And so we're, we have this scheme that we're working on that might allow some cool features, but it really is based on, you know, how well people remember things. And so I'm reading these papers that are talking about like, well, if, if you go over, you know, nine words or seven words, you're going to have problems. If, um, those words are, you know, start with certain letters and there's this distribution, like it just changes how people remember them. If you could pair them together and it gives all these scenarios and talks about like just how humans think mm-hmm. at a really like, dis- you know, low level. And I've found that those are the, the kind of the coolest white papers that lead me to kind of question we're animals right at the end. And so we all kind of have these traits and behaviors and to the better you understand people sure. as like an organic, you know, system, I think the better you can tailor your products and services. Wise words for sure. 
What's your best advice for maintaining more privacy online? Is it use a VPN? Is it uh, use certain apps for certain functions online? What, what do you find yourself usually telling people? So I think that we have like a, a cool opportunity with uh, FIDO and some of the emerging standards to have stronger forms of auth. So if you can use browsers that you know support that and you can use second factors and hardware factors, those are you know always going to be great. Burner email addresses currently and you know logging in trying to use browsers that might not track you everywhere. I'll hat tip to Brave here, even though it's not a Microsoft sure. product. And I, you know, hopefully we have, you know, things along those lines that we'll support as well. Also, you know, just being, ha having hygiene around passwords, not using the same password over and over again. Um, even though your password manager is typically locked to one or a few factors, it's still better, much better than just trying to hand roll the same password over and over again. So any any favorite um, LastPass or one password type solutions or not is that not viable in your view? I I don't have a, a favorite. I know I've used I've used LastPass. Um, gotcha. Seemed like a like a pretty good product. I know we use it for some of the uh, organizational stuff that we do for the decentralized identity foundation. So yeah, that's one that I've cool. What about favorite apps on your home screen right now? Is there anything new? Anything that's uh, people finally got up your me to join Telegram. Okay. I've been asked, like people just constantly ask me to join Telegram. So I finally did that like literally two days ago. I know it's like a crazy. I, I did it recently, but generally not, I'm not using it that much. Uh, I'm just using it to, <laughs> to converse with the individuals that invited me there. That's, that's yeah, basically exactly. like, what about, that's, yeah. That was exactly it. I, I use Twitter a lot. It's pretty much Twitter, Feedly and the browser. Yeah. I just have a really utilitarian sort of time with my phone. I don't take many pictures or. And what's your uh, work? How do you describe the foundation that you're a part of? And how would you present that? So the Decentralized Identity Foundation. Yeah. So that's Microsoft's one member of the Decentralized Identity Foundation. And really, uh, it's an organization at identity.foundation. That's the URL that is chiefly tasked with gathering together the community of decentralized identity focused companies and organizations to produce a set of interoperable components specifications, everything that would be necessary for this new ecosystem of identity to take off such that it isn't just Microsoft going and saying, here's what we think decentralized identity is, uh, or any other companies. There's other big ones in the space too, um, IBM, Sovereigns, you know, sort of a, a larger voice in the space. And we are all sort of in the same ballparks. We get mm -hmm. about 80% of it, we agree on, and we need to make sure that we align on the other 20% or else at the end of the day, it's just silos of decentralized identity where you have different technical takes that don't really work with each other. So that's what that's what its goal is. Cool. And um, final question here, feel free to give a long-winded answer because it's a complex topic. What does volunteerism mean to you? So when I talk about it or occasionally when I find myself talking about voluntary things or ideas or philosophies and people ask me about it, I'll say, oh, it's just the idea that you would make things more voluntary where they're less coercive. So trying to make things better, create more optionality for people, more freedom. How do you present that? And what do you, what do you feel about that, that word? I guess if I had to roll it up into one, one phrase, it's, you know, good ideas don't require force, right? right? If you have yeah. a truly good idea, you can engender people to your idea and you can draw them into your camp and you can convince them of that without um, resorting to violence or, or coercion. Um, for me, you know, volunteerism is something that I I sort of, I realized that I believed in over a period of time between when I was maybe um, 18 and 23. And it took, it took steps. Like mm -hmm. I was probably more in like the conservative camp, not, you know, not the overly religious part or anything sure, like that, sure. but I just, you know, I believed in like the constitution, that sort of stuff. And then right. over time I, I said, you know, really people should be able 
to govern themselves as long as they govern themselves within the sphere of their rights that don't infringe on that of others. So after about you know my mid-20s, I sort of thought, hey, you know what? Other than my family and my wife, my kids, that sort of thing, my daily mission, I think, in life, going back to the title of the podcast, is I try and wake up and think that can I do something today and be purposeful about it that would perhaps lead to people being more free tomorrow? Yeah. And other than succeeding in my personal life, I think that to the degree that I'm able to do that, you know, looking back on the years, I think that's the degree I've been successful in my life. I completely agree. I think that's such a great metric and it's a good thing to think about. Great question to ask yourself every single day. When you present this or when people ask you about it and you find that people are semi-confrontational or offended or maybe skeptical about it, do you try to talk to them anymore? Do you try to, or do you just disengage at that point? Yeah, it's 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 funny because uh, I have a I have a buddy that works at Amazon and um, he's he's also you know a voluntarist. I try to engage people. I think that it's it's really important, even if people be you know, even if they throw a lot of vitriol your way or they're just real nasty. I think it's important to to bring facts to the table, to bring the concepts of of nonviolence to the table, and maybe they'll think about it later on. I've actually had that on a couple of occasions. People say, hey, man, you know, years later, I really thought about it and I, I've come more towards that side. My friend at Amazon, um, we meet up, you know, all the time when I'm up there in Seattle and he's kind of gone the other way. He's like, man, you know, it's just, it's, it's so hard because it, it takes a lot of time mm. and, you know, I've, I've got so much to do and it's just, it's just something where for me, it, it makes my stress level go up and, you know, I, I get too sucked into it. So I think everyone's different, but I personally, I make an effort to engage because I feel like if you don't propagate those ideas, if you don't stand up for what you believe in, especially in the authoritarian world we kind of live in today, then who's going to? Uh, yeah, again, agreed. When we talk about volunteerism or when you talk about it, do you think it's something that is akin to the opposite of politics, where I view politics as basically you know, a necessary evil? It's, it's our attempt at collaboration in a large group. But it obviously has a bunch of negative trade-offs that come from that. Is volunteerism just a type of politics that is more technologically oriented in that volunteerism is basically about like, how do we do more with less? How do we do more with less human suffering? That's that's how I view it. Do you view it in a similar lens or? I think that volunteerism sets forth boundaries that are more objective. And so we can uh, talk about, you know, the, the meta idea that there is no objectivity in the universe or something, even at like a physics level or something of that nature, because like metaverse, you know, at a certain line, you have to draw, you have to be a little bit practical. Sure. So I think volunteerism sets up some very sane and approachable objective borders, which is, you know, I have a right to do the things that are completely within my sphere, unaffecting of others, mm -hmm. right? The idea that I have free speech because I can enact my right to free speech without conscripting other individuals to speak on my behalf. I, I have the freedom of movement so long as I don't violate the boundary of maybe someone else's house. Like I don't, you know, break into their house. So I think that if you just take that simple set of boundaries, I think what volunteerism does is says you should be able to persuade people to mm -hmm. jump on board with your ideas. And it has this natural decentralization effect where, yeah, you don't get to form a huge mob that's the size of, you know, you know, a thousand square miles and then force people that have nothing to do with your idea or your project to kind of just jump on board because you know you have the bigger guns or something. It makes you say, right. do I need to maybe localize this further? Or if it's a big deal, how can I make people care about it right. and be thoughtful in that way instead of just you know always running to the, the mob solution? Yeah. And I think too, it 
creates a scenario where it's re- so Taleb talks about this a lot, where it's very easy to macro BS. It's almost impossible to micro BS. So <laughs> yep. I, I view volunteerism as something where they're not going to be as many massive scams. There might be some smaller local ones, but those are just going to be small shocks compared to the large catastrophes that we're potentially avoiding. Um, that's actually, it, it, that's a really interesting thing to bring up in the sense that when you turn to, you know, purely democratic means or, mm-hmm. you know, mob driven means, you do tend to sort of, it feels like, you have, I wouldn't call them all black swan events, but you have these bigger failures completely because a smaller percentage of society, even in America, I think it's like 25% of actual possible adults who can vote, vote. Right. So you have this relatively smaller set of the total population that sort of is directing these really large Incredibly important decisions that and, yeah, and the minority is controlling. Yeah, yeah. sometimes they're the worst idea possible and they do them at scale. Right. So your, your failure is scaled as well. Right. And it's just, it's so funny sometimes where it's like, we have this wonderful laboratory of all these different states and we're the only country in the world that basically has this. Like, why aren't we running more exper- localized experiments? Every single corporation that achieves escape velocity or IPOs and becomes successful, they're famous for running local experiments. But why is this foreign to us on a national stage? I feel like we've built into society the idea that you should be deeply offended within your own country about people who don't do things in relation to how you see the world politically. Uh, yeah. Like it, it's weird because it really it, it doesn't cross country borders as much mm-hmm. because you might see in, in other countries overseas, maybe even in the Middle East, right, where there's things that are done to folks there that are everyday and common in their cultures. And they're objectively bad things that are done to people, horrible things. But that doesn't get as much air as if you have like a controversial opinion on maybe some genuine political disagreement here that 50, it's a 50, 50 split on. Right. So I think we, we have had this insidious desire inside our own country to say, I can't possibly fathom the idea that I, I live in Oregon and someone, you know, over in uh, Texas is making like a completely different decision than me. They shouldn't be able to do that. And I think we have to reject that as a people. We have to mm-hmm. suppress the idea that we need to make the world into exactly as we see it. Right. So long as those people aren't directly hurting us. Yeah, I, I agree. And it's like at the end of the day, too, it just goes back to are you able to love your own quirks and weirdness? And are you able to love them when you experience them in others? And it's it's one thing to pay lip service to it, but that's why I love big technology corporations. And it, people are going to like cringe when I say that. Um, <laughs> but what actually happens inside those organizations that I found anyways, I'm not familiar with Microsoft, but a lot of the other big ones like Google, Amazon, know a lot of folks there. They're great people. And they're they're actually quite tolerant of opposing, even with some of the recent Google memo controversy and stuff. I would say on balance, these groups are quite tolerant of people who are exploring, let's call it um, very different lifestyles. And what's your experience been in the technology community? And do you feel like technology as an industry needs to become more tolerant? Is there a lot of work to do? And how weird should we allow people to be basically? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I tend to think on all accounts that people should be able to have full control over their own life and expression, all of that stuff, so long as it doesn't actually end in, in acts of violence, right? Um, yeah. And that's from what you say on social media. I'm fine with people saying uh, abhorrent things on social media, so long as I don't have to pay for that, so long as sure. I don't support it. I think that, you know, the, I think Brandeis was the one who said the best antidote or, you know, something similar to this, the best antidote to poor speech or, or to negative speech is, is more, more speech, right? Not yeah. The reduction of it. So that's, that's where I fall on that spectrum. And I think that 
tech has done a good job in some ways of supporting some really traditionally suppressed communities. And I think that's great because, you know, no one should feel like they're an outcast right? yeah. just for just for some decision. That's a totally personal decision. No one should feel that way. And I can say that I've felt even in many tech spheres, you know, like an outcast being, you know, an ardent libertarian, a voluntarist, like it's not common. I mean, it's it's like the one percent right of, yeah. of folks in, you know, in probably our country. And it's not accepted by, unfortunately, it's not accepted by the right or the left. Right. <laughs> you're yeah. kind of, you're kind of not, uh, you're not on any side. So, so I've noticed that too. And I think if we could just all dial it back a bit in terms of saying, let's, let's, let's exterminate ideas versus yeah. let's, let's gather together and point out and, and really highlight bad ideas and right. say why they're bad. Like I would love to turn that ship. I just, it's hard today because it seems like it's going the other way. It's yeah, it, it is difficult. I, I feel like, though, on a local level and because we don't get to see here and experience all the conversations that go on behind the scenes, basically, and where there is the absence of recording. I, I feel like that's, you know, obviously it's a place where people are going to be more honest, but things change when you start recording them like we're doing um, when you start preserving things, what people say changes. So I guess final question, final thought I want to explore with you is when we add an observer to conversations and things like that, they change. So how do we start getting more open and honest and brave conversations? How do we facilitate a space for them to happen? Is it just trust? Is it podcasts? Is it um, people who get to know each other talking more over time? How do you think we get there? Yeah, so I, I definitely think the chilling of speech by you know, the de facto chilling of speech, uh, in essence, by understanding you're watched even even people who say, well, no, I, I wouldn't you know, hold off on saying anything. I think you'll find that if you study them, they absolutely would. And arguably the scientific research says that everyone does. They absolutely. change behavior when they know they're being observed. Yeah. And so, so I think the one way that we can do that is, is with technology. We can provide systems where people can trust that who they're talking, they don't have to know who they're talking to, but they can trust that who they're talking to is you know, a reputable professional in the medical industry mm -hmm. or that they have experience as a lawyer or maybe experience in some sort of scientific area that they want to debate, right? Without knowing their, their true identity, they can know that piece of their identity mm -hmm. and then have a debate maybe that doesn't include the personality and the ad hominem surface right. of the other individual. So that's something that these decentralized identity systems could do. You know, I can give you a proof of those things and then we can have this discourse and you could say, hey, I was told by someone reputably who is a doctor and, you know, after hashing out with them, they felt this way Sure. without getting stuck on the other stuff. I think other stuff, it's social, right? The other, the other side of that coin is social being accepting of not trying to go after who that is and mm -hmm. not trying to attach the personality or the other actions of who that is. A great example of that, that I've you know seen in my discourse, the folks is like Thomas Jefferson. Right. I'll talk about some of the things Thomas Jefferson did that are objectively good. Some of the viewpoints he's put out that were great. And, you know, people love to gravitate towards the person. They say, well, you know, there's the slavery issue and that, you know, one thing, even, even if it's a bad thing that someone does and it's, it's grossly bad, doesn't invalidate everything else that, right. that they've done over the course yeah. of their life. And I think as we digest that as a society and maybe, maybe really start to understand the implications of that, that'd probably be the way to attack it. I think too, it's like, you know, you don't have to, you're not saying that certain behaviors are okay. You're not condoning it, but we do have to, I think as a society, start exploring the idea of uh, forgiveness and collective forgiveness. It's something that, you know, you don't hear about it anymore. It used to be something where it was a truism. It was a cliche because you were reminded in your family at school uh, all over that you should forgive people. It's, it's okay. 
Do you think that people now view forgiveness as like a sign of weakness uh, as if you forgive someone publicly or something like do people view that as like a sign of like megalomania or like what do you think people think about it? I think there's generally benign topics that people are willing to forgive. Yeah. Um, but I think that so many topics are tied to our political positions these days that people are playing a zero sum game. They're right. saying, you know what? I can't bend on any one point and show deference or mercy or humility or anything to this other side. If I do, I'm if gonna I be do, exposed to it. You know, I'll be exposed to it or they will win right. because of this one little crack in the dam. And I just it all is rooted back to the discourse and how we're carrying ourselves. And if we don't correct that, I don't, you know, I would think it would be hard to correct any of the other stuff. Yeah. And what role do you see for cryptography? Obviously, like decentralized systems is something you feel very strongly could help us move to a place where we have more conversation, more honest conversation, more freedom. Is it cryptography? Are there any other technologies you're really excited about? So, you know, I think cryptography under, underlies most of the systems that we're talking about. Uh, another one that's I, I mean, it's still within the range of cryptography, I suppose, given its hashing, IPFS, um, interplanetary file system, which is, you know, being able to look up things in a ring of computers by hash. I mean, it's similar to BitTorrent. Mm -hmm. People are familiar with that. There's, there's some similarities there, but it's more of like re-architecting the web for a more distributed, resilient state where I can, you know, mirror the same web page and really address it by hash. So I can say, I'll look up this indicator and it's always going to return this web page and it's going to be distributed across millions of computers across the earth. So it's not like the silo model of if I host a web site with this one domain and that gets taken down, my whole web page is gone. Right. That's a really cool advancement that I think could help us have lasting discussion. And that's, that advancement would be a movement towards, uh, more free speech because you're in a sense your speech is going to become harder to censor so yeah. right okay yeah absolutely and so it's funny we use ipfs as one of the components in the did method that we're building on top of bitcoin um that you know is is going to try and provide these decentralized identifiers at scale but if you look at the systems that we're doing you know we're building with an identity you can break them out and all of those constituent parts are really things that can help on all of these other you know facets i think you know one i'll bring up one example fake news is, is a big one and understanding like the veracity of who you're talking to. So right. I wouldn't suggest this with all data, but if you're going to put it, be a reporter who puts out a, a piece of news, maybe you sign something that says, yes, I verifiably am part of the AP. And it was taken with this camera that was registered and you know that it hasn't been manipulated and the photograph isn't you know tampered with or deep fake. So I think all of those things start to imbue trust in the communications we have. Um, but there's a double-edged sword because you don't want to be signing everything everywhere sure people tracking you but some amount of that is going to be a necessity because i think fake news and what you can do with modern video and machine learning is uh terrifying yeah it could uh, make our problems a lot worse in right. the trust of like communication right if we a lot of people don't like donald trump i'm not favorable of many politicians on either side sure um including him but if you were to be able to make him say far more radical and, and much more terrible things, right? Mouthing the words of say Hitler or something like that through a deep fake, you can start balkanizing and, and really dividing society even more so than we see today. Definitely. And I think too, the potential for authoritarian actors to use this technology against their populace has, uh, I mean, I think that's a very real risk basically that's happening right now. And we got to get some type of handle on it. Daniel, this has been awesome having you on. I really appreciate you taking the time. Any final thoughts or calls to action for people? Are, are you hiring? Is your team expanding? Where should people go to find you? 
So, you know, I'd say if you ever wanted to, to touch base with me, uh, you can do so over LinkedIn. Uh, I'm on Twitter, um, CSU Wildcat on Twitter. We, I think we might end up hiring for more roles that are related to the technology I talked about um, later on in the year, um, but I don't have specifics on that. Decentralized Identity Foundation, all of our work, 90% of every piece of code we write is already out there in open source. Uh, and we desire this to be an open source from the ground up. So you can go there and participate. If you're a programmer, you know, check stuff in. If you're, maybe you're not that technically savvy, but you can contribute to use case definition or the, the role of a user, you know, the perspective that you could give us, then do so. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us, man. This has been a blast. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, their customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.